If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Sin, depravity and corruption. These are the words that are most commonly linked to the Borgias, the Renaissance family with the most immoral reputation of them all. But to what extent is that reputation fair? In our latest Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Professor Jill Burke helps to find the truths buried amidst the scandals surrounding the Borgias, from rumours of incest and the decadent banquet of the chestnuts to the forgotten triumphs Alexander VI had as Pope. Asking the questions was Kev Lotchen, section editor of History Extra and deputy editor of BBC History Revealed. Today on this Everything You Ever Wanted to Know podcast episode, we're going to be discussing the Borgia, one of the most infamous families of the Renaissance. And joining us to explore this topic is Joel Burke, who is Professor of Renaissance Visual and Material Cultures at the University of Edinburgh. Um, Jill, welcome to the podcast. It's absolutely great to have you here. Hello. It's nice to be here. Um, As with all of the episodes in our Everything series, the topics we're going to be talking about today are based on questions submitted by you, our listeners, and also the top Google search queries. Um, Jill, First off, the Borgia, I wonder if you could ground us a little bit. Where and when in history are we? And you know, who are the Borgia? And in a nutshell, why are they famous? 
Right, so we're right in the centre of Renaissance Italy. Um, so I suppose people who are around at the same time as the Borgia were people like Leonardo da Vinci, um, Michelangelo, um, Machiavelli, and uh, who we'll probably be talking about later. And the Borgia are mainly famous um, for having a member of their family being a Pope, Pope Alexander VI, and him being a Pope that... I suppose it's become quite notorious um, for doing unpopely things, Uh, like being involved in murder and uh, um, bribery and um, other shenanigans uh, that we can talk about. So that's that's basically why they're famous. Um, And they existed at a time when Italy was at war. Uh, In 1494, the French invaded Italy in order to... um, Uh, take control of the Kingdom of Naples. And um, it was a very, very unstable time politically. Um, So this is a background that uh, we have to understand the Borgia um, against, that uh, it was a time when there was a lot of intrigue, um, a lot of uh, backstabbing, sometimes literally, um, and where, you know, um, power was changing, fortunes were changing really, really rapidly uh, over about 50 years, from around 1494 to the end of the Italian wars was in 1559. But the first, you know, 30 years were really uh, dangerous and um, difficult times for the plots and assassinations in in, in Italy. So that's when the Borgias held their most power. And you mentioned Alexander there, and we know mm-hmm. we'll talk a lot about him and his children, Cesare and Lucrezia. But I wonder if we go back a little earlier to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of questions we had in one from Zeprasendo, another from The Golden from Golden, both on Instagram. And they, they kind of basically ask, how do the Borgias come to prominence, and particularly into Italy, when, if, if I understand it right, they're originally a Spanish family? Yeah, that's right. So the Borgia family is a kind of a minor aristocratic family from uh, Valencia, uh, which is now in Spain, then in the Kingdom of Aragon. And they basically come into power because they're really good administrators. (laughs) It sounds a very unpromising uh, start. You know, they're so exciting. Actually, they're just really good at admin. Um, But uh, so we'll get to Alexander in a bit. But the the first kind of um, famous member of the family is um, called Alfonso. Um, Alfonso Borgia and he was born in the late 14th century in Aragon and he trained as a lawyer and he was very good um, as as a lawyer and he entered the service of the King of Aragon who's annoyingly also called Alfonso there's a lot of Alfonsos in this story Um, that's Alfonso V of Aragon and um, our hero, uh, current hero uh, Alfonso Borgia acted as a diplomat he worked in Naples you know there's, there's a very as I've said, kind of very um, turbulent uh, uh, things happening in Naples at the time. And Alfonso V wanted to take over Naples, and eventually he did. So he did this in the 1440s. So we've got this position. The King of Aragon's just taken over Naples. He's got this Borgia guy as his, um, you know, one of his closest um, administrators, someone he really trusts. At the same time, the papacy in Rome is establishing itself. The Pope hadn't been in Rome for much of the 14th century, and Rome was really became a bit of a provincial backwater. Then, at the beginning of the 15th century, the Popes come back to Rome and um, establish themselves as the one uh, true um, papacy after after the papal schism. So, 
the popes are really interested in trying to get alliances with powerful rulers. Does this make sense? Everything in this period has got a lot of kind of political machinations in, so it can get a bit complicated. So the so the Pope at the time thinks, oh, well, you know, now the Aragonese kings, the kings of Naples, I better get them on my side. So what they do is make Alfonso Borgia a cardinal, right? So he becomes a cardinal, and then, um, quite unexpectedly, really, he becomes elected Pope in 1455, and he becomes Pope Calixtus III. So this is when the Borgia family really become very important in Italy. And it's all because um, this Alfonso Borgia was a really important administrator. And then what happens when he's Pope, and this is very common, he has a couple of nephews and he makes them cardinals. So, um, and then then the nephew that we're interested in is called Rodrigo. Uh, Rodrigo is the son of um, Calixtus' sister, Isabella. And he makes him a cardinal. And that's how um, the Borgias, I say, you know, the, the notorious bits, uh, part of the family, uh, as we know them, that's how they became established in Italy. You mentioned as part of that, they were very able administrators. So one thing uh, on Instagram, the Jumping Jacks wants to know is how rich they were at that time and what kind of, where their wealth came from. I mean, this is assuming they had wealth. I mean, how might they compare, say, to the Medici? Their wealth mainly came from the church, right? So they, um, so I'll, I'll look, just look at Rodrigo because he's, you know, became um, Alexander VI um, in the 1490s. And he started, uh, he was made a cardinal at 25, but even before that date, he'd been um, a canon of cathedrals. He'd uh, got benefices in Spain and he just kind of accrued a lot of church um, positions and with them came money. Um, and so most of their money came from the papacy, and came from uh, this way. Now, the, now the Medici family, uh, they were bankers, right? So they ran an international banking network and they were wealthy through trade. So they have, uh, they're both wealthy families, but the Medici wealth was much more solid. And, and we'll find out because the Borgias, <laughs> one of the problems with the Borgias is because they were so reliant on this role in the papacy, right? And, and this is why they kind of went up in fortune, went down in fortune really quickly. Whereas the Medici wealth was based on a banking, an international banking network. They were lending money to like the King of England, King of France, all this kind of things. And actually it turned out um, that those connections and the wealth that the Medici had was much more solid. Their family was built on much more solid foundations. We'll talk a bit more about the uh, the Medici a bit later on. Um, but in terms of the popes, then, so you've got Calixtus the third. He makes his nephew Rodrigo a cardinal. Rodrigo will go on to become Alexander. How does um, Rodrigo rise to that position? Rodrigo is, as I said, like twenty five when he becomes a cardinal, so very young. But he's soon like he's really good again at administration. And Calixtus makes him his vice chancellor. Um, and that means the vice chancellor is a person who takes care of all the administrative stuff at the Vatican. So he's like the right hand man of the Pope. And this is 1455. So, and he just stays as vice chancellor because he's good at it, even after Calixtus dies. So Calixtus is only um, Pope for three years. Um, and then he dies in 1458. And uh, But Rodrigo Borgia stays as in this role as vice-chancellor in the Vatican um, right through the next papacies. 
and he's still uh, the vice chancellor um, after the death, uh, death of Innocent VIII in 1492. Now, no one expects Rodrigo to become the next pope, particularly. He's not like one of the, 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 the hot... Uh, the hot candidates uh, in, 40, in the conclave in 1492. But um, what happens there is that there's two major factions. There's a pro-Neapolitan faction and there's a pro-Milanese faction. Um, and each of them have different candidates and there's a bit of a stalemate and neither of those candidates can get elected. And so Rodrigo, partly because he's not from an Italian family, right, so he's separate from all this, and they know he's a good administrator. He's like a safe pair of hands. Um, what happens is that the Milanese faction, um, led by Cardinal Muscanio Sforza, say, all right, OK, we're going to back you now. And so then he gets uh, elected to the papacy and becomes Pope Alexander VI. Um, there's also a certain amount of promises of money involved. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of rumours about uh, this conclave being extremely corrupt but a lot of the conclaves were decided through influence through not even if not exactly bribes through uh, promises of um, benefices through promises of church wealth so it's not necessarily more corrupt than other renaissance conclaves <laughs> um, even though you know after you know posthumously um, the Borgias get a lot of uh, a lot of stuff thrown at them and their reputation is gets very bad indeed. We will talk more about their reputation yes, as well. We <laughs> so <laughs> Alexander becomes Pope. Lots of people would like to know things about Alexander. Um, so Callum Papworth on Twitter, he asked, yeah, it'd be great to get an understanding of whether Alexander's womanising behaviour was so different to the behaviour of a Pope of the 15th, 14th and 16th centuries. So, I mean, could you give us a bit of a, a, an overview of um, what exactly Alexander gets up to that starts getting him this rep? I mean, presumably as well, he's quite a different Pope to his uncle. Yeah, I mean, Eclectus was only Pope for three for three years. Um, so in some ways, he doesn't have quite such a, a time to build up a, a reputation as Alexander. The Renaissance Papacy was different to the papacy today. And it doesn't really make any sense unless you really kind of take that on board. So it's not just a spiritual power. So the popes in the Renaissance are, like the popes today, the spiritual leader of, of all Catholics, right? And of course, this was before the Reformation. So that's a very large amount of people indeed uh, that spreads uh, over uh, uh, most of Europe. But they were also temporal leaders they're also secular leaders and uh were kind of like um uh, i suppose kings or princes and had um uh, uh, and ruled over a lot of central italy um and this part of central Italy was called the papal states right so it included places like uh, bologna and um later on uh, imola and, and places like that so they had this dual kind of role and this is true of all renaissance popes so it's not just Alexander at all. So his successor, Julius II, who hated Alexander, was also like a massive um, military leader and wanted to expel the French out of Italy and was also very, you know, really big on war and, and not like, not Pope-like as we'd, you know, understand it today at all. Um, so that's different 
As for <laughs> the thing that everyone knows most about Alexander is, is his children, right? And um, that he had a mistress, um, a series of mistresses actually, and he had children. Um, a lot of Renaissance popes had children. So um, Pius II, who was a pope in, in the late 50, uh, 1450s, had two children. Um, Pius III had children. Uh, Julius II had children. Um, a lot of them. And they're all illegitimate because, you know, you couldn't get married <laughs> if you wanted to be uh, um, a pope. <laughs> and what was different about Alexander VI is that he was really intent on getting his children to create an inheritable wealth, right? So when you're the Pope, you have access to a lot of the wealth of the church, but it's not your family's, right? So when you die, the wealth goes with you. And in this period, getting your children and lineage is really important and, and, and passing on something to your children is massively important. I mean, it is today, but more so, right? in the Renaissance. And so what Alexander VI did was think, well, I've got these children, how am I going to pass on any of this wealth to them? So much more than other popes, he, you know, is interested in furthering the fortunes of his children. And he really adores his children, it seems. And he really trusts them in very, very important jobs. So that's what's different. Um, He also is rather flamboyant in... um, during his papacy, not just before his papacy, but during his papacy, having mistresses. <laughs> so he gets a new mistress during his papacy called Julia Farnese, and he has a child with her. This is kind of scandalous um, at the time. And uh, But Rome, it was like a kind of bubble, the Rome of Alexander VI, and a lot of the cardinals had concubines. Um, it was at this time in the 1490s that the word uh, courtesan or courtesan in Italian was first coined, right? So it was very kind of licentious um, time and place. And what went on in Rome was surprising to people who weren't part of it. But it seemed to be quite acceptable um, for cardinals and things to have concubines within that kind of setting in Rome in the 1490s and early 16th century. Um, so, yes, he was... Other, other popes also were not celibate, but Alexander VI was very not celibate. So it wasn't entirely scandalous. It was just more of a step beyond. It, it was, it, I mean, arguably, he pushed it a little bit far. <laughs> you know, things like he he had, he made, he went away um, for a while. I think it was um, in 1501 and let his daughter, Lucrezia, take charge of running the papacy, right? For, a, a, you know, for those couple of months that he was away. Um, and that was, that was pretty scandalous. Because, like, that you're not meant to have women in the Vatican at all, let alone a woman who's effectively in charge. And, and did the cardinals accept that? People plotted endlessly against the Borgias. You've got to tread really carefully in all Renaissance courts, um, because if you go too far one way, you know, you, you, you're at the risk of ruin or death. Um, you know, this is the way that Renaissance courts often operated they're quite dangerous places uh, once you get to a certain level um and so although this happened you know part of the backlash that happens to the family um is because actually people were thinking were kind of uncomfortable uh, with this kind of behavior we mentioned lucrezia i think we mentioned Cesare very briefly earlier um 
one thing lots of people would like to know about Liz Fulson on Facebook, Tess Smith on Twitter, Hannah K. Jelsmith on Instagram, they all would like to know about incest alleged or otherwise between these two children of Alexander. Um, is there any truth to this? Is it just a rumour? It's just a rumour. Um, so it was a rumour that circulated... The idea of incest in the family was a rumour that circulated during their lifetimes, right? So it's not like something that's been made up by later historians. Um, but the, the And there's reasons for it um, to do with Lucrezia's marriages, really. Um, so Lucrezia was married three times. And the first time she was married was at the age of 13, um, which in itself is very shocking to us. It wasn't wasn't that uncommon um, for aristocratic families um, to marry off their daughters as soon as they hit anything near puberty, uh, though 13 is particularly young. Um, and in her first marriage, she married this guy called um, Giovanni Sforza. He was part of the Milanese family, you know, the Milanese faction, um, probably part of, like, Alexander thanking the Milanese faction for um, supporting um, his papacy. And uh, but what happened is that Milanese faction started not to become useful uh, to the Borgia after a few years, and um, so they wanted to annul the marriage so Lucrezia could get get married again. And Alexander said, "Well, let's annul it on the basis that the marriage was not consummated, and and that Giovanni Sforza is impotent, right?" And so Giovanni Sforza said, "Well, I'm not that keen on this idea." And then he started to say that um, Lucrezia was in an incest, uh, was having incest with her dad, with her father, with Alexander the Sixth. So this is where the first rumor of incest is from. That it was between Alexander, uh, uh, between actually the Pope and his daughter. Um, but there's clear reasons why this rumor was being spread, and it was kind of like a, you know, a kind of battle of lies, essentially, around, around um, ending this marriage. But they did, uh, Giovanni did eventually say, yes, I am impotent, he signed uh, documents, legal documents to that effect. Um, he was kind of uh, bribed into doing it and persuaded by members of his family. And then um, Lucrezia uh, married again. Um, and she married uh, another guy called Alfonso. Um, Alfonso of Aragon, lots of Alfonso, as I said. And she married, and he, she was married to him for about two years, and it seemed like politically the right thing at the time. Um, then it stopped being politically, very soon stopped being politically the right thing. And um, Alfonso was murdered, almost certainly by um, Cesare uh, or by the Borgia family. Um, he was uh, stabbed um, in Rome on the steps of St. Pete. I mean, this is pretty scandalous. On the steps of St. Peter's, he didn't die. He, he brought uh, to be recovered in the papal apartments and then he, he, as he was recovering, he was strangled. And I think it's this, right, kind of fact that people think, oh, it must be a crime of passion uh, by Cesare because he loved his sister. But in fact, it's just political. Right? It's just political. Cesare was, really, was pretty ruthless, a pretty ruthless figure. And um, they needed Lucrezia to forge other alliances. And she went on to um, marry the Duke of Ferrara, who was called Alfonso. So she was kind of like, she was, you know, she was really young. We're talking about a really young girl at this time. And she, at this time in her life, she was quite a pawn in, in the family, you know, these dynastic um, shenanigans. Um, but I, but you see, I don't, I don't think there's really 
any proper evidence. It's just these rumours spread by people. A lot of people hate this family for various reasons. And so there's a lot of rumours. And this incest thing becomes bigger because of the, like, um, fictionalisation of the Borgias that you start to see, um, you, you know, particularly um, recently, um, but also in the, like, 19th century and, and uh, you know, various times after since their since the, um, fall, really. That's such an expansive answer. Thank you. And hopefully that answers Jen Kerry's question on Instagram, who just wanted to know much more about Lucrezia. Um, one follow-up from that, which uh, comes from Kath Casper on Instagram, was whether Lucrezia was a villain or just a victim. Right. Okay, so we've talked about the bit of the light of her life when Lucrezia was really a victim, I think, you know, of just circumstances, being part of this massively powerful family, being part of this shifting system of alliances during the Italian wars. But there's... And I don't think she was ever really a villain, but she was really cool, right? Because she gets on. <laughs> Lucrezia's great. Um, there's been more recent work on her um, in the last 20 years um, by historians who have looked at more documentary evidence of what she did when she was in Ferrara. So she spent the last uh, 17 years of her life or so in Ferrara. She got quite a lot of power there. She deputised for Alfonso when he was away. Um, but she also was a really shrewd businesswoman. She set up her own uh, mozzarella business. <laughs> so she sets up this business. She buys loads of water buffalo, loads of land, and she um, pawns some for jewelry. And she sets up this really successful and shrewd business person. So um, she's not just a victim. She's not really a villain, but she is a, quite an interesting figure in her own right. Um, but all that stuff has been a little bit subsumed by this incest thing um but yeah she's 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 great she's one of these there's a lot of very very cool italian uh, aristocratic women hanging around in the early 16th century and lucrezia is one of them still to come on the history extra podcast the vatican under alexander the sixth was different there were more women in it there were he was more ambitious for his family and he was more open about it than other popes and that's the key difference This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Let's talk about Cesare. What can you tell us about him? Just a brief overview of who he is and how he fits into the Borgia story. So Cesare was the son of Alexander, and he was either the oldest son or not, because we're not sure of the date of birth of his uh, of another son, Giovanni. And um, he's a cardinal uh, for a little while uh, after the, uh, and then suddenly wasn't. And he was never suited, I don't think, to be a cardinal. He never wanted to be. And then um, he, you know, after his um, brother um, died, um, he was also murdered. He was found in the River Tiber with uh, stab wounds. Uh, No one knows who murdered him. It could have been Cesare, but um, I don't want to say for definite because who knows it's not very fair to to say it was him um so after that he became really the kind of big hope for alexander as a secular ruler and he sent out um cesare to um um lead uh, a campaign to get um various little tiny city-states in the Romagna and get them under papal governance. Um, so and that's what Cesare did, and he was very su- successful, very ruthless, <laughs> kind of just toppled loads of these states, so these kind of statelets that were held by various ruling families. And he um, and he carried on doing that, really, until um, Alexander VI and him, and him both got very ill, um, and Alexander VI died. Uh, Cesare didn't, he uh, recovered, but by that time, um, you know, because his dad had died, he lost a lot of the influence um, in Italy. He Then he went over to um, Spain and to Navarre and was a military leader then, and eventually he was killed in 1507, so not long after his dad died, actually, um, in battle, um, I think by a spear wound, uh, a siege in a place, uh, in Navarre, and um, yeah, and so he yeah, had a, quite a ignominious death really very very steep rise and then very steep fall. what was he like as a, a military commander Kane Watson on Facebook would love to know he was determined and he was ruthless notoriously ruthless and um I mean this is linked also uh, to his reputation, which was much enhanced by Nicola Machiavelli, um, another you know famous and sometimes much maligned figure um, uh, from the 16th century. Um, and uh, Machiavelli writes a lot about his his ruthlessness in, in um, the book The Prince. Um, but the very, most famous um, thing that Cesare did is uh, when he's um, mercenary military leaders which in Italian called condottieri so uh, the condottieri are kind of generals who fight who are paid to fight um, for uh, political powers so he had some of these uh, one of them was called uh, 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 Vitalozzo and um, he 
they turn against him, right? So he's really successful, blah, all these states are going to him. And then they start to betray him. And Cesare finds out about this and he says, okay, it's all right, guys, you know, come on, we can, we can make up about this. And then they, so they come back to him, he imprisons them and then he has them strangled. Um, and it's really kind of publicly um, uh, shows, you know, what happens to people when they disobey him. He was, it was looking, um, before Alexander died, it was looking like that um, uh, they were, had their eyes on Tuscany. So all the Florentines were really, really scared <laughs> that he was going to um, invade Tuscany and take over Florence as well. Um, and so he was, he was impressive. I mean, um, Machiavelli, what did he say? Machiavelli said about him that he said, if you don't want, that Cesare said, if you don't want me as a friend, you'll know what it is to have me as an enemy. And that's what the Florentines thought. They were they were terrified, basically. So yeah, he was a very effective military leader. And uh, soundingly, from what, that and what you said before, very ruthless as well. Um, mm-hmm. This is a very specific question, but Delia Martland on Facebook wants to know, could Cesare have had tertiary syphilis? And would this explain his behaviour? Right, I, think, I don't think it explains his behaviour, right? Because I think he was just, you know just this way inclined <laughs> you know a lot, a, lot of, a lot of people um you know I think you had to have ruthless you had to be pretty ruthless to have power in Italy at that time and if you don't have you know this ma- this big family background like the Medici do they're in the you know you're, you're a newcomer you have to be incredibly even more ruthless than everyone else so I think that's why he was like that he did also have syphilis almost certainly he wore a mask when he was um uh, in his later years, um, apparently, when he after he was killed, they found him that he had a mask because half of his face had been eaten away by syphilis. Syphilis was very widespread amongst the Italian elite in the um, later 1490s and early 16th century. It was probably um, uh, an illness from the New World, um, so it came in and you know pew, spread really like wildfire amongst um, and 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 um, Cesare was yeah did probably have tertiary. By that point, did, by his death, did have tertiary syphilis. But I don't think we can blame syphilis <laughs> for his behaviour. Um, notwithstanding the fact that he may have only had half a face, two people have asked, uh, Mike Gingrass on Facebook and Nancy Buchanan on Twitter, they both want to know about the rumours that Cesare was in fact a body double for Renaissance depictions of Jesus Christ. Yeah, this is a really odd one. Uh, and um, it just is not true. So Cesare was, uh, you, you know, um, born... Well, Cesare had a... I think, I think the reason why this could come about is because Cesare had a beard, right? <laughs> and fairly, like, long shoulder-length hair. But if you look at images of particularly military people in this period, particularly from Spain, everyone has the same hair and the same beard. Um and um, beards associated particularly with generals, with military men, this kind of thing. So beards really fashionable. Shoulder length hair is just de rigueur. It's just what's in at the time. And so if you look at a portrait, the portrait, a portrait of him, you'll see, oh, that could look a bit like Christ to people who don't know that it's a fashion. But image it, Christ was white with a beard and longish hair. And it was portrayed that way for centuries before Cesare was born. So it's just it's just it's just a, one of those really weird internet rumors, I think, um, that kind of gets uh, uh, just it's like in a, just just gets repeated without people really looking at the evidence. So that's not true. Speaking of things we find on the internet, um, one big <laughs> Google search query is the banquet of the chestnuts, which I, I, <laughs> I gather is Cesare's involved in that. But could you just 
break down what's going on here. All right. Well, the Banquet of the Chestnuts is a famous party that happens in the Vatican um, in 1501. And it happens in Cesare's apartment. So it is kind of his party. Um, and there's a proper source for this. This is this is true. And I have actually got it with me so I can read it out if you like. <laughs> um, and so this is this is written in the diary of this very dry and, and uh, diary of the papal master of ceremonies. And he's normally like, oh, the king of France has to sit there and has to bow, you know, bow. And then he has to, the duke has to bow. It's really boring diary, most of it. And then you get this entry, and this is the most famous bit. So it says, in the evening, um, in October 1501, 50 decent prostitutes or courtesans had dinner with Duke Valentino, that's Cesare, in his room in the um, Apostolic Palace, that's in the Vatican. And after dinner, um, they danced with the servants, the courtesans, and others there, first in their clothes and then naked. After dinner, lampstands holding lighted candles were placed on the floor around the table, and chestnuts were strewed around them, which the prostitutes, naked and on their hands and knees, had to pick up. The Pope, the Duke, and his sister Lucrezia were all present and watching. Finally, prizes were offered, silken doublets, pairs of shoes, hats and other garments, for those who knew the greatest number of these prostitutes carnally. So basically, it was a massive sex party, um, which involved chestnuts. I mean, it should be said, this is not a common occurrence. They're not always having chestnut orgies at the Vatican, but this did seem to happen, and it's possibly from here that you get things like the chat about incest and stuff. Well, so my follow-up is going to be, it's going to sound loaded based on the banquet of the chestnuts, but a bulk of questions on a similar theme. This one's from uh, Nicholas Surges on Twitter, and it's like, depictions of the Borgia family frequently characterise them as corrupt, decadent and cruel. To what extent is it fair? And also they ask, is it based on biased sources? Yes. It's based on bio sources, um, kind partly. Uh, so we've talked a lot about some of the things that the Borgias did. So, you know, Cesare probably had, um, you know, Luke, well, did have Lucrezia's second husband murdered. Uh, he was a very uh, ruthless uh, military leader. Um, but so were a lot of other people who were around at that time. Even if you just... You know, people might be more familiar with the Tudor court, right? So even if you look at like Henry VIII or Ma then Mary Tudor or, or Elizabeth I, you'll know how vicious and dangerous it could be at the Tudor court. And it's the same in Italy, um, that it's just a, a dangerous place. Uh, you know, you know, people did get killed, people did get poisoned in this period. The Italian wars was particularly violent. There was lots of sacks of cities, lots of civilians got killed. Uh, it was a really, really dangerous um, time to be alive. Now, the reason why the Borgias perhaps got, uh, have had fingers pointed at them so much is because they had this really precipitous fall from grace. So um, Julius II was a member of the Della Rovere family and these were real enemies of the Borgias. So he was like, I'm not going to stay. I'm not even going to look at, you know, Alexander VI's apartments, which are very fancy we can maybe talk about them later in the Vatican I'm going to have my own apartments done because he's so appalling such an appalling person and so a lot of the history that was written about the period of Alexander Alexander VI papacy was written by people who are his enemies or who um you know like Florentines 
like um, uh, Francesca Guicciardini um, or, you know, some of the accounts of uh, um, some of uh, Alexander's enemies. So a lot of it is biased. And also, you know, people tend to repeat the interesting and salacious bits, <laughs> you know, of the story. I mean, we've talked about the bank- banquet of the chestnuts and it is, you know, rather than, which is a tiny paragraph in a massive papal diary full of events that aren't quite so interesting. Um, so, yeah, so a lot of what, what the Borgias did just doesn't, like the, you know, the mozzarella farming or whatever, doesn't, doesn't get uh, repeated quite so often as the murders and, uh, you know, sexual, in, uh, sexual intrigue. Well, funny you do say that, and in the vein of mozzarella farming, um, James G on Twitter, he asked, did the Borgias do anything well? And then we got Franchise 505 on Instagram asked specifically about Alexander and what positive changes occurred in his reign. So we've got the scandal side of the Borgia. What's the flip side of the coin? Alexander was Pope for quite a while and he did some interesting things. He did some things that were really massively important for the world. And because at the same time as Alexander was made Pope, right, 1492, um, Columbus was sailing the ocean blue. And um, so you get this whole new set of um, questions about the status of previously undiscovered lands, uh, what was then called the New World. Um, And so he, Alexander in 1493, um, brought in these papal bulls, made these laws that said that Spain had rights to these newly discovered land land so basically it was alexander he split the world into a line um put put, um, down the globe that said oh yeah you know what what's west of this line spain can have um so that's something that he did that had i don't know if it's good it wasn't good necessarily but it was something that had massive uh, ramifications he was also interestingly and this is something that might surprise people is he was also very interested in church reform so he set up a, um, a little group of cardinals to um, look at uh, church reform. Um, and this included looking at new rules about church property, looking at um, how to make the cardinalate more moral um, and making the, the clergy generally, uh, how, can, how to make the clergy stick to more moral codes. So there's that. And that's something that's often not um, appreciated about him. And he was the good, really good thing about him is that he was very, uh, he allowed um, Jewish refugees who had then be, recently been expelled from Spain in 1492, because they expelled all the um, Jews from Spain in 1492, he allowed them to come to Rome. Um, and this actually, because of a lot of kind of rampant anti-Semitism in the 16th century, this was one of the things that he was accused of. Uh, he was accused, and his son was accused of being Jewish after he after he died. Um, so this kind of um, openness to taking in Jewish refugees backfired on him. Um, but this was a, you know, a really good thing that he did. And how does the family's own heritage from being from Spain, how does that tie in with their relationships with other families on the Italian peninsula? Yeah, um, that's one of the reasons they were really hated. Uh, <laughs> um, Spain uh, in the 15th century it had been relatively recently when it was fully Christianized, And there was a big Jewish population up until 1492 and a big population of um, converted Muslim people. So um, who were then called Moriscos, who were then eventually expelled as well. Um, so 
Italians viewed Spain with some distrust. Um, also, the Aragonese presence in Naples was viewed with some distrust. Um, then later on in the 16th century, Italy becomes this kind of arena for fighting between the King of Spain and the King of France. Um, so there's a lot of anti-Spanish sentiment. And one of the things that they, you know, levelled against Spanish people was that they weren't proper Christians. You know, that they might be Jews, they might be hiding Jewishness, or they might even be hiding, um, you know, the fact that they really worship Islam, you know, underneath the, this kind of facade. And so the fact that the Borgias were Spanish really adds to the reason why they have such a bad reputation. That being said, in his parents on Facebook asks whether the Borgias were worse than other families of the time. I don't think you can say that the Borgias were worse than other families at the time. Alexander was more openly not celibate than other popes. That's true, right? But in terms of the murder, being a bit murdery, right? Other families were also quite murdery at the time. So you'll see a lot of um, poisoning and a lot of um, executions, uh, particularly in the context of the Italian wars. So the Medici were really ruthless. So, um, they, uh, for example, in, when they came back to Florence after being expelled in 1512, they were really, really ruthless against their political enemies. Um, so you get a lot of people, you know, being hung publicly and public executions, that kind of thing, when it comes to political uh, enemies. So I don't think they were particularly worse in, 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 in that point of view. But the Vatican under Alexander VI was different there were more women in it there were he was more ambitious for his family and he was more open about it than other popes and that's the key difference the relationship with the medici is the one that um lots of people have asked like just generally they want to know more about um how did these two families interact um did they really interact i suppose you did mention earlier that at one point cesare was threatening tuscany and the florentines and of course the medici were rulers of Florence for quite a number of years. Right, so it's interesting because the height of the um, Borgia success comes at the same time as the Medici were having a really bad time. So the uh, Lorenzo de Medici, de Medici, which people, Lorenzo de Medici is often called Lorenzo the Magnificent. He's like the most famous 15th century member of the family. He died in 1492. Uh, so another thing that happened in 1492 is Lorenzo de Medici died. Um, and he had a son called uh, Piero, who was just rubbish. He was like a really rubbish member of the family. <laughs> and when he was threatened by France in 1494, he said, oh, you can have all our key fortresses, just, just do whatever you like. And because of this, the Medici family were actually expelled from Florence in 1494, and they were exiled, and they weren't allowed in Florence until 1512. So all that time, when Alexander VI basically is in power... Um, the Medici weren't a massive power in Italy. Um, they were kind of collecting in Rome under the patronage of Giovanni de' Medici, who later became Pope Leo X. Um, but um, so there wasn't this kind of, it's not this kind of um, battle for dominance that you might imagine between the Medici and the Borgia. The Medici were just really 
not very important at that time. It's only in 1512 um, when, with the help of um, Spanish forces, actually, the Medici forced their way back into Florence, um, that um, their star starts to rise considerably again. Um, so, yeah, there's not much interaction really between the Medici and the Borgia. Is there any family the Borgia do have that kind of tug of war power struggle with? Well, the Della Rovere, you know, who is uh, Julius II's family, um, the Orsini, who are a big um, aristocratic family in Rome. Um, all the people, you know, it's, it's so we're looking at Rome here and looking at really the people who are jostling for the papacy. So it's, it's those families that really are kind of angry um, with the uh, with the Borgia. Um, and also just um, all the, so you get, you know, as you as you know, I think as we said, Italy is divided into lots of different city states at the time, and most of them are ruled by individual families. But some, like Venice and Florence, are still republics. Are republics at this time during the Borgia, so they have um, you know governments. So all of them are trying to get the favour of the Pope or um, intrigue behind the backs at their back, so you can get another Pope in next and things like that. Um, it's a massively unstable political situation. Um, so all these families are trying, you know, either kind of lobbying against the Pope or trying to get on his side. I mean, speaking of political intrigues, one more relationship that uh, a couple of people would like to know more about, Caf Casper on Instagram, Hannah Law originally also on Instagram, is Niccolo Machiavelli. Um, we mentioned him briefly before, but how does his story tie in with that of the Borgia? And, you know, one specific question of, was he inspired by the family? Yes. Yes, he was. Absolutely. It's inspired particularly by Cesare. Um, okay, so we've just talked about Florence. And Machiavelli was from Florence. And he was another bureaucrat, right? So he was like, um, you know, we've talked a lot about people being good at admin. And this is uh, Machiavelli's role as well. So he's like kind of notorious for being um, like apolitical and this political mastermind uh, now. But at the time, he's actually quite a sympathetic figure, is Machiavelli. And he works for the Florentine Republic and, and really believes um, that, uh, that in the Florentine Republic at the time he's working um, for them as second, chancel uh, second chancellor. And while he's working in that role, he gets sent to see Cesare. Uh, when Cesare is doing this military campaign in the Romagna in 1501 to uh, uh, 3, and Machiavelli goes to see him maybe three times as part of a delegation from Florence. And he is quite impressed by his ruthlessness. He's like, wow. Um, in Florence has this republic and everything is decided. Although they start to get a lifetime um, leader in 1502, a lot of stuff is in Florence is decided by committee. <laughs> and, you know, Machiavelli gets quite frustrated with this committee kind of structure and it is frustrating if you read some of the Florentine deliberations they just talk and talk and talk and talk um and so he's like oh god you know Cesare just decides things and he gets things done and he's very ruthless um and so in The Prince Machiavelli's most famous work um in book seven Ch Cesare comes out as this kind of model leader right it's, this is how you have to act um there's a very famous bit in Machiavelli when he says if you're a leader it's better to be loved than to be feared but if you can't be loved you better make sure that you're really feared right and this is what Cesare did he just makes people really fear him and um uh so so for Machiavelli he's this kind of epitome of ruthless and effective leadership 
But Machiavelli also notes that he's really dependent on his dad being Pope. And this is why when the fortune's wheel turns, Cesare just falls apart. So there's a bit of both things going on there. Well, that's a neat little segue into what happens to the Borgia after Alexander dies. And then we've talked a lot about Cesare and Lucrezia. What happens to the family as a whole after that, those kind of two generations. Right, okay, so Cesare dies quite soon after, Lucrezia goes and does mozzarella, um, and, um, yeah, these other children um, die quite young. Geoffrey also um, dies in 1516 or 17. Um, the family kind of carry on being minor aristocrats in Spain, um, in uh, Valencia, um, and... I suppose uh, they have, and I think they they still exist right through today. There's, you still get Borgias around, or certainly kind of um, descendants uh, from that family, and they're still, um, uh, you know, in kind of noble, uh, aristocratic kind of uh, 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 roles. Um, the most famous member of the family um, actually became a saint. One of the Borgia uh, relatives, I think he was his great-grandson, Alexander VI, went over to Spain. He was one of these minor aristocrats in Valencia, and he was an aristocrat uh, for a while, and he got married, he had children. And then in his 30s, he thought, oh, I'm going to stop being an aristocrat, and I'm going to train as a Jesuit, um, as, you know, in the Society of Jesus, which had been quite recently founded in the 16th century. It's this massive uh, missionary order. Um, and he did, and he was named as a potential cardinal, but he decided not to be a cardinal. This is uh, Francis um, Borgia, or I think you'd say it in a Spanish way. I don't even know if I want to attempt that. Borgia. Uh, and um, he um, was really renowned for being holy. He was um, one of the leaders of the Jesuit order, and he became uh, canonised as a saint um, about 100 years after he died in around, he died in around 1570, I think, and he became a saint about a century later. So, yeah, so the Borgia family ended up all right, really, um, but they lost their prominence in Italy completely um, and they weren't um, an important family in Italy after the death of um, Lucrezia, I suppose. Um, though her children, and um, she had eight children and, uh, you know, they went on to kind of join the ranks of the Italian aristocracy. We certainly see the stories of Alexander, Cesare and Lucrezia told in um, pop culture. I guess the most famous one is uh, is The Borgias, the one with Jeremy Irons, but all other kind of fictions. I mean, how do you feel about these kind of shows in the way they depict family? You know, I think a lot of historians who know the history of this period get really annoyed with people playing with facts. And that is kind of annoying uh, in dramas. But I can understand why if you... You know, you, you, you're creating a drama and you want people to watch. So you're not going to choose the bits when, you know, Rodrigo Borgia is really making a good job of admin uh, to, <laughs> to show to audiences, are you? Uh, so I understand why you get, like, salacious rumours about Lucrezia and, uh, and Cesare and things like that and why that is something that... So I understand that. Um, I get more annoyed when they get things like um, how how underwear is depicted wrong, stuff like that. <laughs> That's what really annoys me about uh, uh, films and TV programmes of the 16th century. It's like, oh, God, their sleeves aren't tied on in the correct way. That, <laughs> that, that, that bugs me. Um, 
I think people don't watch these programmes to... I mean, people who watch these programmes and enjoy them aren't thinking, oh, I'm reading a history book. You know, I think most people know the difference. Um, the problem is if this... The problem... It, I get more annoyed with people writing history books who repeat this stuff without thinking about the sources it's coming from. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, dramatists have can have dramatic licence and that's absolutely fine, apart from the, with the underwear. Um, but... Um, but yeah, uh, so so you know, I watched the first. Uh, I haven't watched the Borgias actually, the one with Jeremy Irons, but I did watch the first episode um, because of this thing. I get quite cross with it, and I get quite unbearable to sit with with my members of my family. Like, oh, shut up, because <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's not right, that's not right. And I thought it was all right actually. Um, I, I thought I liked the way that it, you know, it had um, uh, Johannes Burkhardt in it, and it had a lot of the names of people. Uh, he were he were um, figures at the time. Um, it was obviously really quite salacious and, and all that kind of stuff, but that's kind of what I expected. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't get I don't get particularly annoyed by dramas being dramatic, but you you do have to take it in, t- in historical terms. You know, you really do have to take it with a pinch of salt. Do you know one I watched recently was um, Leonardo, and <laughs> Cesare turns up in that, but it did uh-huh. get me thinking. And no one's asked what this question, so I'm going to what the Borgias. Um, how they approached patronage during the Renaissance and if they were involved in that in the same way the Medici were. One of the things that I didn't mention when I said oh, what Alexander VI done that was really good was the Borgia apartments in the Vatican, uh, which are great, right? So uh, these were a set of um, eight rooms that um, Alexander had um, decorated um, by an artist called Pinturicchio. And they're really interesting decorations and they're really important um, and were very fashionable in the late 15th, early 16th centuries. Um, So that was a really important part of art patronage. Now, Cesare was moving around a lot and was a military leader. So he did absolutely, I haven't seen Leonardo because it will, I think I'll explode from being too irritated by it. But um, I... He did know Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci did work for Cesare, but as a military engineer. Um, and the most like impressive thing that he made for Cesare is a map. It's a town plan of Imola. And it's uh, now in the um, Queen's collection in Windsor. So it's in the UK. And the Queen's, uh, the Royal Collection has a really, really great website. So you can, you know, Google it and that website will come up. And you can see this beautiful town plan. Um, and the, it was one of the first town plans to be taken, to be looked at from above with an eagle eye view. And so it's actually quite an important thing that he did. Um, but he also looked at fortifications for Cesare, looked at canals. And so he was basically a military engineer for him. Um, but the Borgia apartments are, are, are really great and really underrated. Everyone's like, oh, I love Raphael and the Raphael rooms that were done, uh, you know, uh, a, a few years later for Julius II. But you should go, if you go to the Vatican, go to see the Borgia apartments and and you won't regret it because they're very beautiful. And I'm not going to start, they were sealed for a time. They weren't exactly sealed. I think that this has been a little bit over-egged. So Julius II said, I am not going to use those apartments you know, the, this, this, my disgusting, horrendous predecessor. And he was of that um, family so, who, the arch rivals. Yeah, he's in the Della Rova family. He really hated the Borgia. Um, and so he set up his own apartments, and that's the ones that Raphael painted with some paintings that are really famous. Um, the School of Athens, um, 
uh, is probably the most fa- one of the most famous paintings of the Renaissance, and you might not know what I'm talking about from the title, but if you Google it, you'll go, oh yeah, that one. Um, so um, Julius II had his own apartments, but they weren't sealed. You read some of the stuff online, and it's like they were sealed with wax and like a big tape across it that said "Do not enter," and that's not the case. So Giorgio Vasari went in, for example, to see the Pinturicchio frescoes in the 1550s, maybe, and people used them. Cardinals used them to stay in, um, but they weren't open to the public. Um, like the other rooms in the Vatican were until later in the 19th century, until the 1890s. And it's then when art historians actually started to see it, to see these rooms for the first time and go, well, Pinterickia, he was quite good, wasn't he? Um, so you don't get this kind of sustained visiting into these rooms by people who were grand tourists and stuff like that in the 18th and 19th centuries, centuries like you did with the Raphael rooms. So they were sealed to that extent, but they weren't hermetically sealed or anything. I mean, this this has all been amazing, this chat, but I, uh, before I draw it to some kind of conclusion, I should ask, what have we not talked about, about the Borgias, that we probably should do in like the last few minutes? I suppose, I mean, it, it, it leads on from, I mean, this is a just general point about history, and I think it leads on from what, what we were saying about, you know, the TV programmes, that it's really important to think about the sources that you're reading. <laughs> I know this is kind of a boring thing, or maybe self-evident, I don't know. But the Borges is like, the, the, the way that the Borges have been treated in history is a great object lesson for being careful about believing everything that you're told. Um, and that understanding that even if you've got primary source material saying something, that you need to know who is saying what and what position that they're coming from. And I think if you want to know anything about them, that's that's the most Im- probably the most important thing, that, you know, you need to go back, you need to find the sources. By way of an ending, then, here's an open question from A and Tark on Instagram. What can we learn from the Borgia? Well, I suppose um, you can learn that if people are outsiders, they're likely to be maligned by the people around them that if you gain power quickly, you've got to really watch your back. (laughs) Um, And that, uh, you know, and not to trust, uh, you know, accounts at face value. I I suppose all those things you can learn. Brilliant. Thank you so much. That was Jill Burke, Professor of Renaissance Visual and Material Cultures at the University of Edinburgh. If you enjoyed this podcast then you might also enjoy another Everything You Wanted to Know episode from our archive when the historian Catherine Fletcher joined us to speak about the Medici dynasty. Just search for Medici to bring that up. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.